All right. I am now joined by Deep State Kuba from uh, from This Is Revolution and the author of a piece in Sublation Magazine called uh, Goodbye Gorby. Um, and since I also wrote something very recently uh, for Jacobin in my case uh, about with a much wordier title, since Jacobin has decided that for search engine optimization purposes, you should just have a title that just kind of blandly, blandly says whatever the main point of the article is. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, uh, since we both did Gorbachev pieces lately, I thought this would be a fun uh, call-in. Um, I suppose, you know, we'll, you know, do one that's just specifically on this um, very shortly, but since it just happened and it's going to be on, on everyone's mind, uh, some, uh, <laughs> you know, could do, uh, could do just a minute on the, uh, on the other celebrity death. Um, the, I was really sad to hear about Elizabeth Banks. Yeah. <laughs> She's a great actor. Yeah. We'll feel her loss. Yeah. Well, uh, but it's mean, a happy occasion, I'm sure. You know, faithful <laughs> Anglicans are are celebrating the fact that uh, the head of their church is now uh, King Charles. Her, um, yeah, and Elizabeth Assumption into heaven. Um, right. The, I mean, um, we're being glib about everything, but I lost the queen. Do you have any idea how painful it is when a royal subject loses their monarch in that way? Um, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth, rending of garments. Um, but fortunately, we have Charles there to, you know, long live the king. Yeah, no, it's, and, uh, and I guess I do, you know, as I reflect on this, by the way, there's a lot of noise going on. I'm not quite sure what that is, but, um, it, it sort of sounds like, you know, ASMR-ish, but, uh, um, in any case, yeah, I guess I do derive some satisfaction for the fact that, uh, Liz Truss is going to have to sit through meetings with this guy once a week. The it makes me wonder uh, is uh, because Elizabeth was formidable within British institutions. Um, can Charles really pull the same weight? After all, there must be a lot of compromise that the <laughs> British intelligence agencies have um, in terms of all of his peccadilloes. I mean, he's no Prince Andrew, but um, I I doubt that um, I doubt that there's a lack of material. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is interesting also just the fact that um, you know, that like Queen Elizabeth could be this presence uh, where she you know, she had this, like, kind of uh, pleasant grandmotherly demeanor, and so she could just sort of meld into the institution in people's heads. Uh, and I think it probably helped with that, that when she assumed the throne at the age of, like, 25, she had spent decades uh, broadcasting her various asinine opinions about everything. You know, nobody knew what she thought about, you know, homeopathy, for instance, uh, and uh, and still, and you know, they still don't. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, whereas Charles, uh, might be a little bit harder to forget that there's a, that's a, that's a person who, uh, who won the genetic lottery and now gets to be in this position. But, uh, of course there are other systems where things are done in other ways and, uh, you become the head of state, not by, um, you know, not by having a bloodline that connects you in obscure ways to medieval tyrants, but by wrangling within the Politburo, uh, which uh, which takes us to the our original subject that we were going to talk about today, which is uh, the late uh, and in some ways great um, 
flawed uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who uh, who you just wrote about, as I said earlier, for sublation. And since you know, since yours was much more of a, a kind of straight look back at the man's life, you know, you want to want to kind of start us off on uh, on that, um, like this. Well, actually. How how old was the guy when he uh, when he became the uh, the Soviet premier in, in the mid eighties? Um, let me let me do the math, but um, he was in his late forties, early fifties. Which which is which for the Soviet Union in the mid eighties uh, is. Uh, I mean that's 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 got to be some like serious like Kennedy esque youth by those standards. Yes, the especially compared to um, uh, he was okay. Uh, I'm looking at the numbers, and he was fifty three, fifty four when he okay. um, came to power. Uh, but that's still uh, compared to the two gerontocrats that briefly uh, governed before him. Um, both of whom came to power in an old age and in ill health, um, as well as kind of late stage Leonid Brezhnev, uh, who uh, I remember reading a biography of his that noted that on days when he was meeting with world leaders, all his personal diary would talk about is the haircut he got in the morning. So... (laughs) Not, not, not a dynamic figure. Uh, perhaps we could call him low energy Leonid. Um, right. Borrow. Uh, yeah, like very much the uh, Jeb Bush of the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, Gorbachev came to power um, at a youthful age, and he was the first post World War II um, figure. He hadn't been um, active in the Great Patriotic War, uh, as the Soviets referred to it, and uh, nor did he come through the security apparatus. So he had this vision of the Soviet Union and of um, Soviet socialism that wasn't shaped by violent conflict. Mm -hmm. And that really did represent a departure from the past and an opportunity to do things differently, but it also led to some of his most serious miscalculations. The Americans especially are used to thinking of the Soviet Union as the counterpart of the United States and a a great agent, a great actor of Mm, history. But from its very beginning, the prospect of the Soviet Union and the options available to its leaders were constrained by the poverty of Russia, the serious uh, conflicts uh, that threatened the very existence of the state, and the overwhelming uh, urgency of economic development and industrialization. And while the United States could um, oftentimes do everything on its to-do list, right? Mm -hmm. Fight wars abroad, do the space race, do the Great Society, um, build uh, the interstate highway system, the Soviet Union and its leadership constantly had to pick and choose which priorities to uh, pursue and which ones to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is most visible in uh, the defense sector and the massive expenditure uh, that the Soviet Union placed into armaments and defense, which, of course, was spun by Western powers as an indication of its aggression and its malign intent. Mm-hmm. But even before World War II, um, the Soviet Union was shaped by an extraordinarily violent and destructive conflict with interventionist powers 
the British had taken Arkhangelsk. The Japanese were in Vladivostok. You had uh, American doughboys intervening in um, the distant regions. Several different white armies um, uh, tramping their way through Ukraine, through um, the Far East, through um, Central Asia. And that reality um, drove Soviet leaders to emphasize defense um, over other considerations since defeat in these kinds of wars, uh, whether the Soviet Civil War, uh, the Russian Civil War, or the Great Patriotic War, would spell uh, the end of their political experiment and even the end of their society. While the types of wars that America was at risk of losing, um, Vietnam, Korea, uh, Afghanistan, right, their humiliations, their embarrassments, they lead to some soul-searching, um, but ultimately, it's an away game. And yeah, I mean, even even Afghanistan is obviously just geographically much closer to uh, to the Soviet Union than uh, uh, these places are to the United States. And even even World War One and World War Two, right? I mean, it's like when we sort of have these um, these like you know when pop, when American pop culture daydreams about scenarios where the United States lost World War II, what we're imagining is like Nazis occupying um, the United States, like Man at High Castle, right? You know, but it's, it's, it's not at all clear that even there, that's exactly what was at stake. Yeah, the, um, the United States has this um, great geographic advantage that it's enjoyed from the start. Free real estate together with, um, you know, oceans as your frontiers, that really makes it difficult to um, understand the security um, preoccupations of countries where your enemies are at your gates all the time. And um, the battles are fought at the outskirts of your capital, not... Mm -hmm not um, in obscure cities and strange languages that you have to find in an atlas. Yeah, so so this makes sense. This is the, so all of, I mean, obviously, um, you know, like, look, Lenin was the Soviet leader during the Civil War. Uh, you know, Stalin was, was deep into that. And, uh, you know, and you know, became became leader after that and was leader during World War II. Khrushchev uh, had, uh, as anybody who has read his bizarre self-serving memoir knows, uh, you know, was, uh, um, you know, was, was deeply involved in the Soviet war effort in World War II. And then everybody after that until, uh, until Gorbachev uh, had, uh, had this experience of, of going through, uh, going through the, so, you know, going through World War II, which, right, is is just a very different thing uh, than uh, than just having a bunch of people from your country go off and fight a war somewhere else and die there. Uh, it's still a very different thing from having it fought on your territory, much less having it fought you know with that particular enemy on your territory. So, uh, so it makes sense that Gorbachev, as the uh, as the first uh, leader of the Soviet Union, who um, you know who hadn't. Um, who didn't have who grew that? Up in peacetime. Yeah, who grew up in peacetime? That that would be um, that that would have something to do with the differences, world, you know, in, in his uh, his worldview. And one of the things that you um, you know, you give him props for in the article uh, that you wrote at Sublation is um, is that he had um, is that he you know he really ended the uh, the. The Cold War. In fact, I I just read this morning a uh, article that our friend uh, Branko Markatic uh, wrote in um, uh, Current Affairs, uh, where he quotes a bunch of statements that Gorbachev made about 
you know, relations between Russia and the U.S. over the decades. And one of the things, he, one of the things Gorbachev points out there in, in one of these quotes is that Americans tend to conflate these two events, the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, as if it was the fall of the Soviet Union that then ended the Cold War, when in fact uh, Reagan and, and George H.W. Bush had both um, – had like made this official declaration that the Cold War was over two years before that, and events kind of proved that that the uh, that the you know Eastern Europe fell out of Soviet hands, and the and really remarkably, given what Soviet history had been like up until that point, the Soviet Union just let that happen. It's true. The and it wasn't just the Soviet Union. The pre-Soviet Russian Empire would have been low. To right. um, uh, yeah, to lose any of its um, uh, you know frontier uh, territories, uh, regardless of the the will of the um, of these distant non-Russian nationalities, mm-hmm. and they fought to push even further into um, uh, Central Asia, the Caucasus, uh, you name it. The reversion, the reversal of this uh, like Russocentric um, expansionism mm-hmm. was a remarkable um, remarkable turn by Gorbachev and the um, and he saw it as a representing an opportunity to recalibrate the Soviet economy moved resources away from this apparatus of repression, which uh, was present everywhere, but really needed to um, operate extensively in Eastern Europe and the uh, People's Republics of of the Warsaw Pact. Because uh, by, after the Prague Spring and its suppression, especially with the over declaration of the Brezhnev Doctrine, mm-hmm. everyone there understood that they were under foreign occupation. Uh, whether they had any sympathies for Soviet socialism or not, um, they were um, colonial subjects rather mm-hmm. than um, citizens in any kind of sovereign state. Right. And the the center of gravity for countries like Czechoslovakia, Poland, um, even the Baltic states, uh, Hungary. Culturally, economically, they look to the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite naturally, it's much closer to Berlin from Warsaw, Prague, or Budapest than it is to Moscow. Right. And uh, they shared, um, you know, an old religious tradition, extensive history, um, and admired Western achievements. Uh, you know, people wanted to speak French. People wanted to learn German. Um, even English was preferable to Russian. Uh, while Russia served as a kind of symbol of relative backwardness combined with absolute brutality. So it required force to keep these countries in um, the Soviet orbit. Mm -hmm. And um, that was something which the older generation took for granted, that uh, the world is built with blood and that um, you need to bust some some skulls in order to keep people in line. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas Gorbachev felt that especially given the outcome for the Soviet Union. Um, At the end of the Brezhnev period, you have just a stagnant and moribund culture, economy, society, um, the entrenchment of a um, parasitic nomenclatura. They hadn't Mm -hmm. quite reached the level of um, post-Soviet oligarchs. But Um, the leadership which was supposed to be providing some kind of energy, some kind of direction for um, the development of the country, were instead deeply self-serving. And um, 
if that's what your imperial project, if that's what all of those immiserated lives and shortened shortened lives are buying, then what's the point? And I think that uh, that was what Gorbachev considered, that we can reduce spending on armaments, get rid of some of this useless and world danger uh, world potentially world ending uh, nuclear weaponry and instead focus on our uh, domestic uh, development and by talking to the West, by opening up to the West, we can learn from them as well um, and by reducing the censorship and ideological policing within the Soviet Union, which was the entire purpose of Glasnost, then we can have more um, participation by regular people, more participation by academics, intellectuals, um, more energy in our public life, as well as, and this was um, something that I learned in, when studying the Soviet Union, was that ideological conformity mm -hmm. was so prevalent that the Communist Party itself realized that it didn't know what people actually thought. Because if they asked, people would lie. Right. They would just... Um, and as a result, um, you had all of these official figures about the great enthusiasm and satisfaction, uh, the pride of uh, Soviet people and their system and their uh, fanatical loyalty to the Communist Party their right. gratitude towards it. But they knew that this information was unreliable, so one of the roles of the KGB was actually domestic spying, not in order to uncover uh, foreign agents or saboteurs, but just to find out what people were really thinking. Yeah. Um, and... And this is like, and once you've got into that point, you know, it, it, it does make some sense, um, especially given uh, the Soviet Union's economic decline, right? You know, I, I think that the, the thing that seems to be fair to say about that system is that it was, um, it was really good at rapid industrialization, um, but, uh, but in this like blunt force kind of way, right? Like I remember in the, the analogy Bhaskar Sankara uses, he's probably getting it from somewhere else, but this is where I remember reading it in, uh, the socialist manifesto is that Soviet planning was, uh, all thumbs and no fingers. Uh, so it was really, really good at like turning out just an ungodly amount of like tractors or tanks, which, you know, is not all bad because, uh, cause, uh, sometimes you, know, you need them. Sometimes you need those things. Uh, and, it, and God knows the Soviet Union certainly did uh, in the uh, you know the forties, uh, but um, but it's really bad at this sort of um, you know this 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 more delicate work of of uh, coordinating production with uh, with consumer desires, which is something that um, you know as I, well I, as yeah as well as um, incremental technological development right the. Um, one problem was that uh, between the um, strict planning requirements and the ideological discipline imposed on uh, anyone in positions of um, authority or um, anyone in the intelligentsia, you don't have mechanisms for... Um, Small, smaller scale decentralized uh, experimentation and innovation. You do have great workshops. Um, you do have certain programs that can uh, make breakthroughs. But um, rather than those developing organically, as people recognize opportunities to, to maybe do something new or do something old in a better way, um, it's the thumbs approach to innovation. Like uh, you have five years to put a satellite into space. Right. <laughs> uh, here's a bunch of iron. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, 
And so the combination of the sort of um, homegrown dysfunction of Soviet economic planning with the fact that, as you alluded to earlier, just a just a really tremendous amount of the material resources of the society were being eaten up by the uh, the needs of the the military by this this you know global arms race with the uh, the United States. And so Gorbachev set out to try to fix a bunch of those problems at once. He uh, he tried, um, you know, to you know this perestroika, uh, the program of of economic restructuring, which involved um, introducing some market mechanisms within, while trying to stay within the basic limits of um, of the. Uh, of the Soviet system to still have state planning, to have uh, at least not have private ownership of the means of production, even though, you know, as perestroika deepened, you know, like family businesses or worker cooperatives were fine. Um, and, uh, and then to, and then to eliminate the need for, uh, for all this money to go to the military, as you said, uh, through diplomatic efforts, which are, again, you point this out in your article, uh, remarkably successful considering, you know, I mean, this is what I sort of playfully on Sunday night tweeted out. Okay. But Gorbachev kind of saved the world. Right. And the point just being that like, if in the 1980s uh, we'd had Reagan and, and the Soviet Reagan, right. You know, it's, it's not, you know, I, I don't know if there would have been world war three or not, but I mean, it would have certainly been a much more dangerous situation. Right. You had, uh, you had Reagan and sort of the Soviet anti Reagan, right. You know, somebody who was, who was interested in, uh, in both rhetorical and substantive de-escalation, um, and then there's there's Glasnost, right? That uh, that taking uh, trying to introduce political liberalization into the system, um, and uh, and all of this was supposed to to get to a better, more workable and more humane version of the Soviet Union, not to the non-existence of the, uh, of the Soviet Union and, uh, the, the empowerment of, of a class of, of oligarchs who, uh, the memorable phrase you use in the article is, is, uh, you know, uh, you know, first killed the, uh, USSR and then raped its, uh, its remains. Um, so, so what's your, I mean, maybe we could kind of, um, close out a few minutes of this i mean what what's your take on on why the reform program ultimately ultimately failed right i mean why why we why we didn't get a better soviet union why what we got is 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 the sort of it's it's complicated but in certain respects at least within russia itself the worst of both worlds now where it's like pretty authoritarian again uh and uh and and pretty and pretty militaristic but uh you know but it's it's not you know, it's not like a flawed version of state socialism. It's it's this like horrific kind of gangster capitalism. The I think that um, there's two ways of looking at it. One um, is that, that I read an article, an interview with a, a contemporary of Gorbachev's who represented the kind of uh, left reformist. Um, trend and uh, thought that the problem was that there was still too much power in the bureaucracy. Gorbachev basically had an entrenched elite that um, had interests in maintaining the status quo and he couldn't discipline them effectively. He couldn't break them they sabotaged what he was doing in terms of perestroika and uh, glasnost did create a cultural renaissance and revival and it did unleash a lot of um social creativity a lot of uh, popular uh, energy but without having tangible results to uh, to show um in terms of, you know, the USSR is, is, we're doing this better now. We're making your lives better in this way. Um, that uh, openness created um, large-scale dissent 
that was no longer subject to uh, discipline by force as it had in the past. Um, and so you you basically didn't go far enough in reforming the system and that led to um, its delegitimization. And mm -hmm. whether or not he could have gone further is um, is open to uh, to question. Another way of looking at it is uh, comparing him with uh, Deng Xiaoping, mm -hmm. the Chinese leader, um, roughly contemporary, who um, likewise recognized that the PRC was moribund, uh, technologically backwards, um, stultifying, and needed to uh, transform if it was to remain competitive and um, and preserve its sovereignty. Mm -hmm. But he took the exact opposite route of Gorbachev. Um, rather than trying to introduce more um, democracy, more individual freedom into the system, and while preserving its socialist economic character, he doubled down on repression and the power of the um, centralized communist party, but um, ushered in essentially capitalism right. as the vehicle for uh, technological transformation and growth. And the bargain that Gorbachev offered is you can have freedom, but you have to help me out with the economic problem. The Deng Xiaoping bargain is you, you'll you never have freedom, but we have a solution if you guys, um, for the, the, the underdevelopment question. And also it's not, e not really much of a bargain because, um, the Chinese Communist Party preserved the apparatus of repression, which meant that they could impose it by force. When, by the time Gorbachev needed the security services to back him up, they were already deposing him. Yeah, uh, which is the, you know, which is the part, I mean, actually just last night I watched a clip of, uh, of Gorbachev talking to Larry King in, in 1993, and that last part is kind of what he's emphasizing there, that, like... Um, I, I should have done a better job of making sure that uh, that I was in control of the uh, of the uh, of the security forces, uh, and then if I had, you know, maybe all this would have ended differently. Which, you know, in, in some level, you know, is at least in the very short term sense, maybe true, right? I mean, it would have certainly given the program a longer time to work, and and it's very the problem is the way that you um, maintain control over a security apparatus is you purge it. Right. of um, dissidents and you replace them with loyalists right. which is the old bad Soviet playbook that Gorbachev wanted to um, wanted to finally close right. and it's, it's a tragedy um, of human nature that the type of uh, compassion and humanism that we want in a leader can get in their way of uh, achieving their aims against more ruthless, um, more uh, yeah, right, cutthroat, uh, right? Uh, yeah, rivals. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I also think. I mean, this also sort of where I went in the Jackman article that even if there's some truth to the idea that if he'd been able to uh, to um, be better at, uh, and I don't know, siloing his, uh, his humanism while, while, uh, purging the, uh, security forces, um, that might, you know, in, in a temporary sense that would have helped, you know, give the program time to work. But there, there's also a sense in which, okay, I'm sure Gorbachev made, you know, a hundred mistakes, and, and missteps that that contributed to things ending the way that they did with the uh, you know the coup against him and then him not being able to regain control of the situation after the coup was defeated and the um, and and the the oligarchs uh, taking over like I'm sure you know I'm sure that there are lots of ways in which 
you know, if we could, uh, if we could, if we had the device from Rick and Morty that lets you watch TV from different timelines, you know, and we could watch the, uh, the Gorbachev uh, retrospectives and all of them, I'm sure there are ways in which it would have ended a little bit differently in a lot of the others. But, you know, there's also a case to be made that's like a deeper structural issue here, which is just that, especially to the extent that you give Gorbachev credit for good intentions, that he was trying to, uh, uh, he was trying to build something more humane and, and workable um, and, and liberal within the sort of basic structures of Soviet state socialism. Um, like that there's just a structural problem there because, because uh, who has power in that society? Well, the state bureaucracy, right, is, is who has power in that society. And from the perspective of state bureaucrats, there's just not a lot of natural constituency for what Gorbachev was trying to do, right? Because, uh, because either, you know, if people see like deep structural change going on, um, then either they are afraid of that because it's the it's a threat to the basis of their power, uh, and then you know you get hardliners, or um, or they're excited by it because they see it as a chance to you know turn themselves into oligarchs essentially and, and have a a different kind of power in some ways more power, um, you know and, and and enrich themselves you know as as capitalists, and either way right you know that's you know, there, there just might not be a great natural base for no, let's, uh, let's keep this comparatively egalitarian economic setup, but like also, uh, but also reform it and make it better. Yeah. It's, um, and, and that's a fundamental problem of leftist politics. The, if you are going to achieve anything, you, you can't do it alone. You need to have, um, cadres and, uh, they need to be able to behave collectively in a disciplined and effective way. Um, if you inherit the state like Gorbachev did and come to power within the system, it's easy to believe that the state is your power base. Right. That um, the cadres are your cadres. But they, at that point, the... Um, slavish devotion to to the plan and uh, fearful uh, obedience of the Stalin era, which was based on terror. Right. Terror first and foremost against the Communist Party. Um, that was gone. And instead you have self-serving agents uh, responding to policy changes in opportunistic ways. But... Um, Gorbachev needed his own uh, base of support, his own sans-culottes, or um, his own Jacobins. And I don't think that he... A, I don't think he realized that. And B, um, it would be difficult to find pre-organized groups within the Soviet Union that you could... uh, that could serve that role. Um, Just like it's very difficult, despite the fact that a left political agenda in the United States would serve the interests of the vast majority of people and left policy positions pull better than um, anything that Republicans or liberal Democrats offer. But if you don't have some organized, institutionalized base to work collectively in a disciplined way uh, towards achieving those goals, then it doesn't matter how large your majority is. You can dream of the of the day when, you know, you have spontaneous mobilization in the streets and the revolution happens, but it's going A, it's gonna be a very ugly revolution. And B, um, your enemies are engaged in disciplined, coordinated collective action, albeit with a smaller constituency. And that usually usually wins out over um, hoping that individuals just serendipitously click together and do yeah. what needs to be done. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I, I think that, um, and I think that, like, the, there would also would have been a real problem, even if Gorbachev had had this 
instinct or 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 just vision to uh, to do this right to like try to have mass mobilization within Soviet society, a society that had been like systematically uh, discouraging that uh, for, uh, you know, for its entire existence. Uh, Or you you could end up with Soviet red guards and the cultural revolution. Yeah, that's true too. Um, But yeah, I mean, all of this leads me to think that, you know, um, even though, um, even though Gorbachev was, um, I think, is a you know, again, I think he's a tragic figure. I think he's somebody who, who had the right intentions and, and certainly deserves to be remembered more fondly than either his Stalinist predecessors or his, uh, or his mafioso successors. Um, I think, um, you know, I, I think that it, it's possible that this just couldn't have uh, have worked because. You know, you need. I mean, I think it's it's hard enough to see how, if you want to have a democratic form of socialism as your endpoint, it's hard enough to see how that could come about. Um, as they say in Maine, you can't get there from here. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's hard enough to see how it could come about, like regardless, right? But it's uh, it's particularly hard to see how it could come about if you have a population that has been trained to see you essentially as its. Um, as it's warded, right? I mean, like, not like as, as, mm-hmm. as it's, as your, their representatives, you know, who are, who are in this, engaged in this process with you of trying to figure out what works, but as like the people who are, who sort of get to decide what information you get and, you know, how you're allowed to act on it. Okay. Uh, we do need to go, but, uh, but let me really quickly, uh, jump Michael into here to ask his question. Michael, what's on your mind? Oh, sure. Um, I think this will be a, a short one. It's uh, basically, um, could you guys speak a little bit to Gorbachev's party reforms? Because I thought, I thought he tried to do at least some of that. He tried to like really increase the size of the party, get new people to run for party positions, and various things like that. Were, was there a problem with like who ran for that, or were not enough people engaged in that process, or was it just too? sclerotic like i thought the political reforms were more than just like we're not going to send the secret police uh to you if you you know run a newspaper or something so if you just speak to that i'll hang up all right sounds good thanks michael the so um there was a kind of third element of um, that you could pair with uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, uh, Demokratizatia. Um, it came late. It was from 1987, and it um, represented that type of reform, uh, an attempt to insert more democracy into um, the Communist Party. The, uh, for instance, um, you had multi-candidate. Before, there were these pro forma Soviet elections where mm-hmm. you had one, you could vote basically yes or no on a particular candidate, and you had to have a death wish to vote no. Right. Um, he introduced uh, what you know we might call a communist primary, um, yeah. where you had multiple communist party members um, running for a particular uh, post. And there was also a kind of old-style campaign to uh, increase participation in, um, in the communist party. But by 1987, and... Um, one structural um, structural problem that Gorbachev faced, which we haven't addressed yet, is that even in the Soviet Union, when people dreamed, they dreamed of the West. Mm-hmm. And Glasnost increased that tendency by more frankly and honestly depicting um, mm-hmm. what life in the West was like, which was very appealing uh, to many uh, Soviet citizens, uh, especially since 
the neoliberal shocks hadn't happened yet. It, it's funny, the Soviet propaganda about the um, United States during the 80s more accurately reflects what the United States looks like now. Right. <laughs> but um, people, uh, the mania for blue jeans and rock and roll music, which is a part of that kind of self uh, congratulatory American mythos of the end of the Cold War um, was a real phenomenon. Right. And all of the cool kids liked the West and hated communism. Um, the punk rock kids, the, um, the rebels, the writers, the intellectuals. The Soviet system felt done and the future felt Western, or at least European. Yeah, and so... Yeah, so in that case, it's difficult to get that energy, that popular energy, um, behind Gorbachev's reforms, because the public, and cert- the, the sort of most active elements of the public, were already beyond what he was offering. Yeah, they'd given... Have it saying that we can have, um, you know, tried to infuse a certain degree of, of democratic participation into one party rule, especially by the time that it happened, may have just been too little too late, you know, as far as uh, um, as far as that kind of public participation goes, you know, because I, I, I mean, I think this is a really significant point, because like, certainly when you think about the stuff that happened uh, in the 90s after Gorbachev was gone, right? Um, it's not like you have, um, you know, it's not like you have, you know, a, the Russian public overwhelmingly being like, yeah, I sure am glad that this tiny number of people uh, took control <laughs> over what, theoretically at least, nominally, you know, been the property of the Soviet people as a whole, that, like, I, I, I sure am glad that the economic situation is the way that it is in, you know, 1994, 1995, you know, that's, let's, uh, you know, but, like, I mean, look, uh, Yeltsin, I think, pretty openly stole his, his re-election in, uh, in 96, but I, I think it's, also... I think it's probably not a coincidence that, like, it could, like, the fact that he could get away with that, right? I mean, the fact that, like, there weren't, like, I don't know, general strikes all the time with this, with, like, the economic conditions were so bad, Russian life expectancy for men declined by, like, five years. Like, I mean, I do think it has something to do with the fact that, like, they were just coming out of the Soviet Union, a society in which independent civil society just didn't exist until almost the end. And also, it takes a while to realize you've been conned. The promise the, of Western-style reforms and transition to capitalism was it's going to be painful for a little bit. Right. And it's going to be hard. And we need everybody willing to sacrifice and everybody coming together. But we'll come out the other side at least as Italy. Yeah, you know, right. You know? Um, and it'll be great. And when, by the mid-90s, late-90s, um, some people could still look at Eastern Europe and say, well, they're doing it, we're just a few years behind. But um, once... And the alternative, too, to um, you know, progressing along these reforms that all of the experts, everybody who... Um, said they knew what they were doing, that had the right job titles and came from the right places, said that this is the only thing you can do. The only people who pushed back were uh, communists, uh, like uh, Gennady Zyuganov, right. um, who could have beat um, Yeltsin in the uh, election, were it not for, um, for American intervention and uh, just billions of dollars sloshing in. Um, to you know, for very short-term payoffs, the at that point, 
it was difficult to listen to the communists as well because there was Chernobyl, um, glasnost in the post-Soviet moment when you know you open the KGB archives, reveals that you had been lied to for your entire life. Right. So rather than um, the horror show of um, early post-Soviet Russia leading to a return to the Soviet way of doing things or some motivation to revisit what was working, what wasn't working, it instead led to a overall social nihilism, which um, was very receptive to a strongman savior figure like Putin. Right, and the rest is uh, uh, the rest is our uh, <laughs> terrified present. So there we go. Um, all right, this was really good. Um, if uh, if you would like to uh, to to see uh, to see Deep State in the flesh, and me, and Jason Miles, and David Griscom, and Matt Leck, and um, uh, and Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Um, oh, uh, Daniel Bessner. Daniel Bessner, thank you, Daniel Bessner. Um, and uh, Derek Varn, and I may be missing a name or two. Uh, you, um, you can do that in Los Angeles, California, on October 23rd at, uh, at 7 p.m., uh, you know, tickets, uh, tickets are available right now. We'll put the Ticketmaster link in the episode description. So, um, we, uh, we are going to have to leave it out for there. I'm actually a little running a little bit late for my next commitment, but thank you so much, Kuba. Uh, my pleasure as always. And apologies to come Guzzler 69. Uh, yes. We'll, uh... Yes. Uh, yeah, we'll just, you, Listeners will just have to to try to imagine Cum Guzzler 69's question and then uh, and then a, a the insightful answer to it that Dr. Kuba would have given. Uh, yes. The answer would have been yes. <laughs> the answer would have been yes. All right. Well, um, uh, it's not think too hard about what you may have just committed yourself <laughs> to. We will leave it there. Left to 